Our text is the very well-known, provocative, and almost completely ignored gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 5. We'll make three points, retaliation, resistance, and righteousness. They're there on the insert, the outline in your bulletin. So retaliation, resistance, righteousness. First, retaliation. Jesus, the fulfiller of the Torah, starts with, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Right? This comes straight from Israel's law. You can find it in Exodus, you can find it in Leviticus, you can find it in Deuteronomy. And it's known as the lex talionis, or lex talionis means law of retaliation. Now, this law does three very important things. First, it establishes the basic principle of public justice in society. The punishment must fit. It must be proportional to the crime. So note, this is a, a principle for civil justice in the law. Right? In Deuteronomy, it's Israel's judges who are to enforce the precept. So that's the first thing it does. The second thing it does is it restricts or it limits revenge. The punishment must suit the crime. No more, no less. Right? No, no blood feuds. No escalating violence. And the third thing the principle does is it forbids you, or I, or Israel, or any private citizen from taking vengeance into one's own hands. Leviticus 19, for example, forbids an Israelite from seeking personal vengeance against his brethren. So, retaliation in the lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is simply publicly administered justice. And that brings me to the second point here, which is resistance. Since God is the giver, and on the last day he will be the enforcer of the lex talionis, right? it is jarring, we're used to this I think, but it's jarring when Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. What a shocking sentence this is. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. I think I hear mostly the opposite of this. (laughs) I hear about how we have to resist evil people. I mean, do not resist an evil person. First of all, it's impractical. (laughs) Secondly, on its face, it seems absurd. So before we unpack it, before we expound it, let's just say what it's not. Because if you're like me, your mind is already saying, but what about? But what about? But what about if this happens? And as I've mentioned before, right, the history of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount is the history of avoiding it. It's the history of qualifying it. It's the history of but what abouting it so that it finally becomes almost impotent. 
Right? This is not the coinage of the way we speak ethically. Now, to be fair here, there are legitimate caveats. So let's make them. Let's make them. Jesus is not eliminating the role of the state or its courts or agents of the state, like police. He himself said, render the Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He himself submitted to corrupt courts that held sway over him. And in his own way, he defended his cause when questioned, as did Paul in the Roman courts. He's certainly not saying we can't resist sin or that we can't resist false and deceitful men in the manner that he resisted the scribes and the Pharisees. He could not consistently be saying that churches can't resist evil persons through church discipline. Right? He himself established the procedures of church discipline just a few chapters later in this very gospel. And he does not have self-defense in view in a situation where your life or the life of your family is threatened. We can tell that from the examples he gives after this. Though even that should be done with non-lethal force, if at all possible. Listen to what Calvin says here. He puts it this way. He says, where a man may, without revenge, protect himself and his own from injuries... Christ's words do not stop him from peaceably and nonviolently deflecting the force as it runs into him. Nor does Jesus prohibit you from fleeing from evil. He slipped away from a murderous crowd, right? Paul escaped by being let down in a basket. Mary and Jesus fled from Herod. So we do have to be careful about absolutizing the command. It would lead to absurdities. Right? You should not allow someone to rape you. You should not give the whole of your estate to someone who just happens to ask for it. You should not refuse to defend yourself if someone seeks to dismember you. Jesus is not giving a license to injustice and tyranny here. This is not a charter for violence or a precept of folly. He is seeking to break the cycle of violence, not to make it easier. So those are the caveats. However, right, there is a danger in endlessly qualifying this text. Because we can dilute the shock of the text. Like, oh, good, all right. Well, I don't have to do that. We can feel like we've been let off the hook And if that's the case, I'm going to tell you, you should think again. Because what Jesus is calling us to here is radical and demanding, and it cuts down deep into our instincts for self-preservation. Which means it cuts down deep into our Americanism. We live as if there's no tension at all between what Jesus says here or elsewhere in the Beatitudes, or elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, or in the way of the cross, as if there's no tension between this and a kind of robust American ethos of asset preservation and self-protection. As if the two things, the Sermon on the Mount 
and our Americanism just sit side by side quite comfortably with each other. And if there's no tension, well, then there's really nothing for us to change, right, in the deep ethical structure of our souls. And so the history of the church rolls on, right, and we continue to read the Sermon on the Mount and come out unscathed. We're riding on our high horse. But unlike Saul, we keep arriving at Damascus unmolested, unscathed. So, what is Jesus doing exactly then? Well, minimally, minimally, he's saying something like this. Do not use the lex talionis, the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The rule of strict justice. Do not use it as a principle of your private conduct. So, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. He does not pretend that they're not evil. He does not pretend that they don't intend unjust harm. And he doesn't condone the evil. What he does say is, do not retaliate. Do not resist. And in the sorts of situations he covers here, and you'll see he gives like four mini examples. Lord willing, we'll get to them in a few minutes. And the examples are not exhaustive. He has a wide range of of, of things in view. In these types of situations, which cover a great swath of our lives, he means for us to accept the injustice without redress. Right? Even without legal redress. Right? Do not retaliate with force. Do not retaliate in kind. Do not exert coercive power. Do not resist. Doesn't Jesus know this is going to create a bunch of pacifists in the early church? Who talks like this? But if it were only, if it were merely, don't use the lex talionis in your private life. You know what he could have said? He could have said, don't retaliate. Let the courts handle it for you. Let the courts administer the reply slap to the one who slaps you. But he does not say that. Most emphatically, he denies that he's saying that. He is saying we should forsake the retaliation principle, period. The state may use it. You can't. It's a principle of justice for the fallen temporal old creation. And there are no states. There are no sword-bearing institutions. There is no need for the eye-for-an-eye principle in the kingdom of heaven or in the age to come. And you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, do not physically, coercively, violently resist an evil person. Those who live by the sword or coercive force will die by it. You are called to a greater righteousness. The righteousness of the kingdom the ethic of heaven itself, so show it forth now. And that brings me to the third point. What does this look like? The righteousness. Here, Jesus gives four mini-illustrations of the non-resistance principle. Let's look at them. The first one concerns our bodily well-being. If anyone, no exceptions, right? No exceptions. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. 
So a slap on the right cheek would be a backhanded slap. If the person's standing in front of you, to hit them on their right cheek, you have to hit them like this. And in this world, in the ancient Near East, that would be considered a great public insult. It would not be a threat to life and limb. I've already made that caveat. It would not be a threat to life and limb, but it means the other person is demeaning you. They are publicly humiliating you. They are treating you like a slave. They are striking you. Your blood would boil. And most of us would hit back instinctively, which shows that the gospel has not sanctified our deepest instincts. The gospel flits around on the top surface of our souls. What you are instinctively, that's what you are deep down. What you are when interrupted, when surprised, when struck, when insulted, that's who you are. So they slap you. Jesus says, turn the other cheek also. And this means if someone hits you in the face... You should turn to them and offer for them to hit you again. You know what Spurgeon says here? He says, we are to be the anvil when evil men are the hammers. That doesn't sound very manly. We are to be the anvil, Spurgeon said, when evil men are the hammers. Jesus says here, accept the second slap. Don't give the second slap. But don't miss this. This is an ironic, paradoxical, cross-shaped fulfillment of the law. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, cheek for cheek. Only here, Jesus says, you provide both cheeks. You break the cycle of violence. You forsake retaliation. You double your absorption of injury. Double your absorption of injury. This is what Paul means when he writes to the Corinthian church and says, act like men. Here, the man, behold the man, Behold the man is our example. We heard it from Isaiah chapter 50, where we read of Jesus, he gave. He gave his back to those who strike. And he gave his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Nobody took anything. He gave it. He hid not his face from disgrace and spitting. Or as Peter puts it, He was reviled, and he didn't revile in return. He suffered, and he made no threats. He suffered, and he made no threats. He did nothing to answer his critics. But what did he do? What did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That is, he waited for the resurrection of his body from the dead to be vindicated. Now, what kind of a political strategy is that? Doesn't he know what his natural rights are? 
Right? It's the strategy which absorbs violence to end violence. And Peter says that in doing this, Jesus left us an example so that you and I could follow in his steps. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? Because you want to be a follower of Jesus. You want to follow in the steps of Jesus, then follow him in his response to public, state-sponsored humiliation. Well, that's a bridge too far, I think, for many of us. That's the first example. The second example is dealing with clothing and, by extension, your property. And this example is clearly legal in context. If anyone wants to sue you, what would the, I, I often wonder, what would the American Christian version be of this if we didn't, if we hadn't, didn't know the rest of the text? Right? If anyone wants to sue you, we're tempted to say, well, you've got to countersue them first. Or something like that, right? If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. That sounds exactly like we talk, right? It's pretty much... It's pretty much the ethic of us. To quote Paul, I speak as a madman. It sounds like the exact opposite of what we say. Look, you've got to catch yourself when you read the Sermon on the Mount and you realize, oh, this is the opposite of what I say. <laughs> because the thing is full of stuff like that. Better to lose more, our Lord says, than to rush to court with lawsuits and counter-lawsuits. Offer a generous settlement. Give them more than they want. It's just stuff and the hostilities. In Paul's words, why not rather be defrauded than to go to court to defend yourself? Here, Jesus is clearly moving beyond the Old Testament law. You know, in the Old Testament law, you could not take a poor person's coat from them overnight. You couldn't do it. You know what Jesus says to his already poor flock here? Give them your coat before they ask for it. Crazy talk. Don't worry, we'll, re- we'll readjust. Everything will be fine by the time you get to your car. Because that's what we do. We're American Christians. Jesus knows what it means to be stripped of your clothing, all of it, in an unjust legal proceeding. He's just asking us to be like him. It is this spirit, this imitation of Christ, which the early church had and which we have utterly lost. They joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. We hire lawyers to keep ours. The difference is, heaven for them was real. For us, it's an abstraction. And one cannot come to terms with the Sermon on the Mount unless one is an eschatological person. It makes no sense on any other reading of the Christian life. Calvin. I thought Calvin might help us reform folks here. Here's what he says here. He says, Christians should be ready whenever anyone attempts to strip them of their earthly goods. Well, how would we finish that sentence? Christians, I've heard heard us finish that sentence. 
Christians should be ready whenever anyone attempts to strip them of their earthly goods to do what? Calvin says, to lose the whole lot. See, there is a grace, there is an ethic operative here, which is simply beyond the realm of law or of calculation, of historical or cultural measuring, beyond thinking about what I am owed or what my rights are. It is the ethic of the kingdom. It is the ethic of those whose treasure is in heaven and not on earth. It is the ethic of those who know they can keep nothing so they have nothing to lose. It is the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God. Third here, Jesus deals with our service, your labor. If anyone forces you to go one mile with them, don't give in because that's a slippery slope and you can't give the state the first mile because the state will come back and ask for other things. So you've got to resist the state right here. I heard a few hundred versions of that during the pandemic, by the way. If anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go with them two miles. What? Do you know what this situation is on the ground here? How galling this situation is? How unjust it is? It's a situation where Roman soldiers can conscript your service. right? They can convert, coerce civilians into service on the spot, like they did with Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross of Jesus. This made people's blood boil. Right? The, the anti-Roman politically and earthly-minded zealot party especially hated this law. It reminded them that they were a subjugated people, that at any time a Roman soldier could come up to you and just conscript your service without your consent. It was outrageous, and it made them angry, and they felt they needed to stand up and do something to stop it. And Jesus says... You guys are right. I can't believe the rest of your Jewish compatriots are so passive. Those guys are collaborators. They're compromisers. No, of course he doesn't say that. Here's what he says. Don't resist it. Let your forced labor be generous. Go above and beyond what the oppressive Roman state asks you to do. Exceed the unjust demand of the state. Get that. For in submitting to this injustice, this evil, you indicate not weakness, but that you serve another king. Right? That you belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. It's hard to, but what about this stuff away in the end? Here's the fourth example he gives. And here he's getting at an attitude of generosity even toward enemies. Remember verse 39. He opened, you know, these are illustrations about not resisting evil people. Okay, these are not illustrations about not resisting people in general. They're illustrations about not resisting evil people. And now he touches us in the pocketbook. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now here, you're not being hit. No one's punching you. Right? You're not being conscripted. Right? You're under no legal 
obligation to give. And yet you should seek to give, Jesus says, even in this context, to what is most likely an evil person. And in Luke, he says, seeking nothing in return. Not seeking no interest. Seeking nothing in return. Again, we are beyond this realm of what we deserve or what we think the law should be or what justice is. And again, if you are not an eschatological person, this will just be bizarre. Now, the passage has been historically misused, which is why I started with a bunch of caveats. But still, it's easy to misuse it. It's probably inevitable. It's hard to know exactly where to draw the line in every case. Luther has a a funny instance of what he calls a crazy saint who let himself be eaten by lice and would not kill the things because, well, one should not resist evil. Now, that's absurd, but more plausibly, more plausibly, still incorrectly, but more plausibly is Tolstoy. Tolstoy thought the passage meant there should be no police, no courts, no civil use of the sword. And many others have followed him here. They see some sort of call to pacifism in the sense of there being no standing authority that uses the sword. I think all of these are wrong. But that does not mean this passage does not hit you and I where we live. It hits you in your body. It hits you in your clothing. It hits you in your assets. It hits you in your service. It hits you in your labor. It hits you in your money. In whole swaths of our lives, we can agree with our pacifist friends. Yes, we are not to return evil for evil. We're not to return insult for insult. We're to turn the other cheek. We're not to resist. We're to go the extra mile. If someone says to you, are you a pacifist? The answer should be, in large part. But if you mean, I think there can be no state, or there can be no military actions, no, I'm not. You cannot apply the lex talionis in your personal, private life and follow Jesus of Nazareth. Right? So even in smaller areas than these, of which much of our life is made up, so let's get practical, right? We find ourselves seeking to get back at people. We find ways to punish them, to retaliate, to shut them out. Someone says something at work. Someone slights us. Someone ignores us. Someone disagrees with us. Someone criticizes us. We feel like our honor's been impugned. And then in dozens of ways, we find ourselves seeking to get even, right? To take cheap shots, to subtly degrade or undermine the other person. We're jockeying for leverage or advantage all the time, seeking to exact an eye for an eye or a slight for a slight. Right? This is... This is the kind of thing that happens in families, parents, children, husbands, wives, workers, right? The opportunity to embody this principle is something you have hundreds of times a day. You don't need the state to come and conscript you. Now, in closing, I want to hopefully maybe straighten a few things out about this because it is a challenging passage. 
It's often said the passage is about non-resistance. After all, Jesus says, in plain English, do not resist. But I think a closer look at the passage now shows that's not quite good enough. It's really about not resisting evil by evil means. This is about what Paul calls not returning evil for evil, but overcoming evil with good. So here, remember, we just went over these four examples. I want you to notice the active nature of the resistance Jesus calls for in this text. Right? You want Christian action? Listen to this. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them. Action. The other cheek. If someone wants to sue and take your shirt, hand over to them. Action. Your coat as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them. Action. Two miles. Someone wants to borrow, give. Action. To the one who asks. This is not about passive non-resistance. This is about actively resisting evil men. This is about the strength to love as Christ loved his enemies. This has nothing to do with being a doormat or anything like that. Unless one thinks Jesus was a doormat. This sort of resistance is not about submitting to bullies. This is the key point. This is not about submitting to bullies. You know what it's about? It's about unmasking them. Disarming them. Exposing them as evil. Who is exposed and who triumphs when Jesus is naked and lacerated and hanging on the cross? Who's being exposed and who triumphs there? Right? This is about how people who have already died, that's what baptism means. And people who have already died have nothing from which they can be stripped. This is about how people who are already dead, who've already forfeited their lives, take up their cross and follow Jesus, imitating his public witness. This is about what Bonhoeffer called a visible, concrete participation in the cross. Right? This is about what we see throughout the book of Revelation, which is the epitomized in the life of our Lord. That we conquer by being conquered. One scholar puts it this way. The cross and not the sword. Suffering and not brute power. Determines the meaning of history. This is a question we ought to ask ourselves. Whether we believe that or not. I'm not sure we do. Let me say it again. The cross and not the sword. Suffering and not brute power. Determines the meaning of history. And so we, like Jesus, entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. The God who in the resurrection will bring perfect eschatological justice. Infinitely perfect holy vengeance and thus liberates us, frees us to utterly repudiate retaliation and vengeance now. It's a beautiful thing. The fact that Jesus will administer the lex talionis on the last day means we are liberated from trying to implement it now. The zealots thought the Romans should be resisted and conquered by force, by political revolution. Jesus thinks otherwise. 
His non-resistance is in fact the most radical form of resistance. This is the paradox of the cross. That non-resistance is the most radical form of resistance. His is a revolutionary way of being a revolutionary. Anyone can be a secular, cultural, warrior, political guy. That's not a revolutionary way of being a revolutionary. That is. And that is what he calls us to here. And he calls us to it first, not on some grand political stage, but in the little things of shame and honor in your life, of insult and injury and slight and oversight. And then into the bigger things concerning our bodies, our assets, and our service. You are summoned. I am summoned. Against our wills, really. (laughs) Against our natures. We are summoned to a revolutionary way of being revolutionary. Thus shall your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Amen.